What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow, science Science and superstition. superstition. You've entered the The fifth dimension. dimension. The latest series from the Consequence Podcast Network will open the door into Jordan Peele's new revival of The Twilight Zone, and it will go as far as the limits of the mind itself. Subscribe to The Fifth Dimension. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the host of this particular series. We've been on a hiatus for a while aside from our mini-sodes, which some of you have enjoyed in the past months, but we are back with our first full season of 2019. And to celebrate, we are talking all things Tim Burton starting today and for the next four weeks following. Five episodes in all, because I my I got stuck up on my own math there, so I wanted to walk you, the listener, through <laughs> it with me for like the maximum experiential treatment. Anyway, again, we're going to be talking all things Tim Burton. We're going to be talking about everything from the aesthetic to the writing to the photography to the sounds of Burton all of which have come together into one of the more iconic modern American filmmaking looks. Mm -hmm. And to bring us in this week, I want to introduce my guests for this first episode. I'm Samantha Kuykendall, a co-host of the forthcoming Twilight Zone podcast, The Fifth Dimension, and a lover of all things pop culture. Just ask my bank account because it's <laughs> sad. <laughs> but I'm really excited to be here and to talk about Tim Burton with you guys. Well, I'm Michael Rothman, editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound and also a constant contributor of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network, and also Halloweenies, a horror franchise podcast. And right now we're doing Freddy Krueger. So very exciting, dreamy year for us in 2019. It's a fun and spooky time all around the Consequence oh, Podcast we Network love right now. To get spooky. <laughs> now, I, I couldn't even say speaking of spooky because that's a bad segue into like an advertising thing. But 
what's not spooky is the fact that you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Podchaser, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So please feel free to subscribe. Please feel free to leave us a review. Please feel free to smash that fucking like button. (laughs) (laughs) So to bring us in on that note, for week one of filmography, Tim Burton, we are talking Burton Gothic. And I want to start off our discussion for this episode and for the podcast at large with this. We talk all the time in culture, around the office, whatever have you, about the Tim Burton style. Mm -hmm. It's something that feels like shorthand. It's assumptive at this point. So what I want to open the floor to you two about is how do we define the Tim Burton style? Black and white. No, I'm just joking. I, I think it's it's hard to truly define Tim Burton nowadays because there's I, I split him in two different eras. And I feel like it's almost like he's a punk rock band that's gone mainstream, you know, where he, you know, Hot Topic has kind of uh, pretty much taken over the Burton aesthetic. So when, whenever you think of Tim Burton, I think a lot of people just automatically go right to A Nightmare Before Christmas, which is kind of funny because he only produced it and just realized the story. But uh, that's for me just because of that commercial tie-in that's happened I, I would say since what the early, early 2000s maybe maybe the late 90s for me that 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 always tends to be the the sort of modern goth aesthetic and and I know that's not fair but that's that's the first thing that comes to mind for for Burton but what's so conflicting about that is that like Edward Scissorhands has so many bright colors mm-hmm. and yet we like associate Burton with kind of like this dark and spooky like gothic horror aesthetic but it like works somehow like you still have that like goth feel to Edward Scissorhands with like a backsplash of like bright blues and yellows and greens yeah like so if I would say because I actually we were talking about this in the office is that you know David Lynch is not too far off from Burton's aesthetic in the sense that David Lynch is the type of filmmaker that everything seems normal until you turn left and you realize that you actually turned right and that you actually realize you're not even on a plane of existence anymore. Whereas Burton is the type of person where nothing like everything feels similar and yet also everything feels abstract and there is a weird black blob in a very bright street and there's something irregular and ominous about it. And also whimsical. I think whimsical is a very important construct in like Burton's overall aesthetic because if there wasn't that sense of whimsy, I don't think he would be as big and as mainstream of a filmmaker as he's become. Well, and there's a definite sense of play, I think, at work in all of his body of work, even in some of the bad movies. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about a couple different iterations of that sense of play as it relates here as the episode goes on. But I think it's really relevant to this part of the discussion, if only because when Burton started out particularly, there was something distinctly childlike Mm -hmm. to his filmmaking and to his films alike that I think you see complicated in really interesting ways. Not only when, as you acknowledge, Mike, he became a household name and a household style at that, but when, you know, he simply got older as filmmakers do and watching someone try to negotiate these very young themes throughout a consistent career. And you see a lot of different permutations of that, that we're going to tease out in the coming weeks. But as we're discussing today, the four films we're going to look at are going to be 1990s Edward Scissorhands, 1999's Sleepy Hollow, 2012's Dark Shadows, 
and 2016's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. And you get a really interesting diversity of eras across this because you have the 90s bookended. And let's be honest, when we think Tim Burton culturally, we think 1990s in particular, totally. by and large. Totally. He has totally. had hits, substantial hits since, which we'll get to in upcoming episodes. But here you get a look at two phases of the early era and two very interesting iterations of late era Burton. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. I mean, because especially with the way that this is kind of constructed, you really do get that that beginning uh, in the end of his 90s era, which I don't think people actually really think about. I think people go, well, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is where everything splits off. But if you really think about it, like Sleepy Hollow in 99 is really when things actually do start to change and he's starting to find, he's almost like there's a self-awareness about his, you know, his proceedings. Yeah, but Sleepy Hollow is almost like, it has this like matte feeling to it. Mm -hmm. Almost like if you were to like pick out a paint, it would have like a matte sheen. Um, whereas like, I feel like Alice in Wonderland, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Miss Peregrine's, it all almost has like a shimmer on it or mm -hmm. something. Like it glows. It has this kind of, like Alice in Wonderland, I feel like has that, these like, almost what's the word i'm looking for like shiny feeling yeah to it. well it's like plastic almost and i and I, the way i look at it is again it's a punk rock metaphor that i was mentioning before is that the 90s and the late 80s essentially really kind of capture that diy aspect that he had where everything you're seeing on screen seems as if he's been building it in his mind whereas and i put this in one of our articles that's going to be on constant that's been on consequence of sound for a few days now that it feels as if everything after that it's almost as if DIY became almost like a factory. Like he almost became like Warhol in his way where he was commissioning other people to create the weird, you know, where he would actually make the weird beforehand. And, and that's kind of where I almost see the differences. Well, and I want to return to this idea of glow in that context for a second too, because you can see that glow change throughout his career. And I think that's an interesting way into you know, a discussion of the aesthetic end of Burton, because there is something distinctly contradictory, as you mentioned earlier, Samantha, about, you know, the the visual juxtaposition that Edward Scissorhands offers, which is something he had played with in Beetlejuice before that, and something he would play with a lot throughout the rest of his career. And that juxtaposition in Edward Scissorhands and in a few other movies is looking back to this very mid-century modern time. It's invoking this very specific 50s, 60s, proto-suburban yes. yes. yeah. imagery. And that's a milieu that Burton works in a lot. It's almost like Wes Anderson, where like sometimes you don't know what time period one of his movies takes place in. I was like a really big fan of the series of Unfortunate Events series too growing up, which was another like series kind of like that, where they have some technologies that were of the era or age, and then some like really odd, weird things that you wouldn't like even the telephones in um Edward Scissorhands, like even though the movie takes place in the 90s, they're all very 50s like telephone cords and things like that so it's almost like you can't tell which decade we're in when we're watching a Burton film and, and a lot of the 50s motifs have to do with a lot of the nostalgia that was being kind of handied around uh, in the 70s and 80s and, and you know you have to remember that you know Burton he, he's, a, he's a filmmaker from that era so any sort of nostalgia or any look back to the past is going to go to whatever he grew up in. He grew up in the 60s. He grew up in the 70s. And in the 70s, there's a lot of 50s nostalgia. And there's a lot. I mean, like Happy Days was one of the biggest shows in the 70s. It's a show primarily set in, you know, the early 60s and, and, and going forward with that. 
And in the same respect, Lynch was like that, which is why, you know, you have like Blue Velvet and all of a sudden, even though it's set in 1986 or 1987, it's very tied to this sort of style of Americana that the filmmaker grew up in. And, and Burton's the same way. He just is subverting that and trying to use what were considered norms of American culture at that point and just adding abstract patterns that uh, would come from, Make it you know. kooky, kind yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if we're talking about, you know, subversion of mid-century culture, I feel like that's a good way into starting our discussion of Edward Scissorhands. Oh, absolutely. Velcro, sweetheart. Is Velcro that hangs on the dashboard. I've never yeah. seen it. Sorry, I'm late. Hi, Sorry, dear. We have to go get another without you. Here you go. So, Edward, did you have a productive day? Mrs. Monroe showed me where the salon's going to be. You could have a cosmetics counter. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Great. And then she showed me the back room where she took all of her clothes off. As Burton's films go is maybe the most Tim Burton of all the Tim Burton movies in terms of not only what it meant for his aesthetic, not only really cementing itself for the public after the back-to-back successes of Pee Wee and Beetlejuice, but would also establish Johnny Depp as a major leading star, Winona Ryder as another major lead, and the Tim Burton house style as something colossally bankable. Yeah, and you know what's so odd is that like his roots are in Disney. You know, like Disney found him. Disney was the one that, you know, his stock of the celery monster attracted the attention of his animation division, you know, the Disney animation division. So this is a, a filmmaker that, you know, on the surface you see, oh, well, this is the kid that's going to be in the corner of the lunchroom, the, 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 the JD from Heather's, the, you know, the, the, the outcast that's probably going to have all the, the crazy brazen ideas. But at the same time, he's so creative that it, it, it's just interesting that there's a heart to him. There's, there's this sort of um, these like plaintive qualities that he can never shake. And maybe it's because it's his upbringing, upbringing. I mean, he's from California, it's a sunny place. You know, his, 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 I think his father was a minor league baseball player. And you can kind of see this sort of like rebellious nature come out of that, you know, like he's he's bucking against the sort of norms that he grew up with. And you get that in Edward Scissorhands because he's it's his suburbia is presented as a nightmare because it's so it's so like blasé. Well, and it's not just blasé, but it's garish in mm-hmm. this immediately apparent way. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, the mid-century style does a lot in terms of just being stunning to look at, which we'll especially get into in the second half of our conversation. But it's also, again, Mike, you made a really essential point here that we're coming out of the 80s nostalgia for, quote unquote, when times are simpler. A piece of coded language we're still bandying about to this day because nothing ever changes. (laughs) But you also get the feel that in Burton's early movies, he identifies profoundly with these protagonists, Mm -hmm. with Pee Wee. With Beetlejuice, the point of identification is a little more freewheeling. Well, I think Lydia would definitely be that character of the outcast, you know? So, I mean, I feel like a lot of his early films deal with the outcast person. Like, even the Penguin, you know, is definitely... Like, you feel for that character Mm -hmm. as dirty as he is. So, I think he really excels at writing the character trope of the misunderstood person. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think as it applies here, what's really remarkable to me about the way the film 
handles Edward. I mean, for one, the pacing of the movie is remarkable because it's loose, conversational, and almost episodic yeah. in a way that is at once extremely early 90s filmmaking and remarkable for a studio movie by pretty much any measure. There is a loping pace to it where... Edward, for all of the remarkable physical design and costume design and prop design and the performance itself, Edward disappears into scenes mm -hmm. repeatedly and for comic effect in this way that's kind of exhilarating and just how unassuming it is. Well, he barely has any lines. I, I think he speaks like maybe I would think like... 50 or 60 words in the movie. Like, it doesn't feel like, even though the movie is titled after him, it's about how he's affecting the town as opposed to, like, him being the main character, you know? Well, it, he, he represents this kind of change, you know? It, it, it's the, the, the pressures of change that are existing on the outside of town. I mean, it, it's, it's no... I mean, it's no coincidence that this this Vincent Price-esque castle exists and overshadows this entire suburban suburban America. You know, it's 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 the classic metaphor of evil outside of the village. That's just that's going to be don't go to the house there. exactly. Yeah. You know, and and it's it's any sort of fairy tale deals with that. You know, you go out into the woods like the you know there's going to be something out there and. You know, this is this is a creator that was brought up on fairy tales, and you could see it just in his own short stories or in his own, um, you know, short films uh, in general. I mean, he he's so intrinsically tied to American folklore, or even classic folklore, or Gothic folklore, and this is that realized to 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 such an utmost level that I don't think he had a chance to do. Certainly not with uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, because in in a sense, you can argue that that was Paul Rubin's story. And and while he does get at that with 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 Beetlejuice, with this you really do get the kind of fully realized Burton narrative and the visual metaphors that he was he's been he really was striving for. And you could tell like this is something that he really wanted to put out there to really put his name on something. Well, and it feels intensely personal a lot of the time because it's a whole parable for how it is. And I think this is one of the crucial things to this a film with this premise working. There is absolutely a version of Edward Scissorhands that's a lot more didactic, that feels a lot edgier, so to speak. And, well, I guess I just don't fit in with everyone else. It's yeah. it's like Beck Bennett's Saturday Night Live character. Yeah. But, <laughs> and especially modern day, you see a lot of Burton imitators hit precisely that kind of tone. Well, because it's the Frankenstein's monster trope. But like the whole time, because I watched it for my first time, what, like last week? Mm -hmm. And the whole time I was just thinking of, this is the idea. This is Mary Shelley's story, but with a, a tweak, you know, and it's I guess I had read that um, he had filmed it in a way that it was like the town was being seen through Edward's eyes. So like that's why everything seems so fantastical and bizarre, because it's everything that Edward is seeing for the first time, which is something that he's explored all the way up until Miss Peregrine's. I mean, he he loves to 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 make that sort of message of you know, the world is, you know, perception is reality. Exactly. That, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's something that's in some of his best, strongest works. And when he can get a uh, touch on that sort of dichotomy between what's reality and what's this sort of, height, sort, sort of heightened reality, that's where Burton shines. It's just why I think, you know, something like Peregrine's, which definitely suffers from some of his more modern intricacies, it still gets by because he thrives in that sort of dichotomy. And, you know, you see that in even something like with Big Fish and it's not even his story. 
Well, and we've talked a lot about Edward Scissorhands without touching on the centerpiece of Edward Scissorhands aside from Burton, which is Johnny Depp in what has to be the gentlest performance he's ever left on Uh, screen. It is delicate. It is, again, small in a way where he genuinely, like someone who was at that time a heartthrob and a charisma factory beyond that, he ultimately eased down into being almost very sweet and small. Well, the in a scene sense. where um, uh, Diane Weiss's character is applying the makeup to his scars, and she's like trying to put the like ivory or like lavender color on his skin to match how white he is and to cover up like his obvious facial disfiguration. It's so sweet because he's just sitting there with this smile on his face, like letting this woman that he just met, like make him feel like at home for the first time, I think. I, I, the cast list for this, the, the the possibles or what ifs for this are pretty interesting and also kind of go to show just how much of a vision that Burton really had uh, for this. And also just kind of one of those classic cases in Hollywood where it just is just a, a perfect match you know, I mean, like Tom Hanks was considered for this. Gary Oldman, which I could actually see. We were talking about this before. I think Gary Oldman would have actually pulled this off, but it would have been a different film. But, you know, like Tom Cruise. Tom, oh, God. Uh, Robert Johnny Jr. was interested, which actually wouldn't be that uh, bad. Yeah, I could have seen that. Um, at one point, Michael Jackson had, had, <laughs> had expressed interest, which would have made this movie very interesting of a discussion mm-hmm. at this point right now. But. Yeah, with Johnny Depp, it's it's, it's th- there's an innocence that he brings to this movie that I don't know if any of the alternatives would have had, mostly because he was such a, such a baby face actor at that point. I mean, this cry is, baby, yeah, you know, <laughs> literally, I yeah. Mean, yeah. So I mean, I, I I think the the tranquility that he he has in that performance is what really captures the sort of Burton esque imagery of just letting showing versus telling. And then I think that's, what's great about it. Well, and he makes, he makes Edward childlike in a way that doesn't really cross the line into being precious or self-effacing in any way. He's innocent. Samantha, to your earlier point, you know, this is a movie where the movie very much happens to Edward. Exactly. Everything that happens is being visited upon him by the town or even by Vincent Price as the inventor. But I think the Vincent Price portion is something I want to focus on because it's what really popped out to me on watching it. You know, this was not long before Price passed, first of all. This yeah. was three years before he died. He was so sickly on set that he was getting faint under the heat lamps trying to shoot even his small handful of scenes. And in that way, it becomes this really sweet elegy, too, to the hammer horror and like weird fiction stories of the 40s and 50s and 60s that Burton himself came up upon becoming a diegetic part of his work And then in the same breath, becoming part of a new evolution of it becoming something else, which, you know, horror movies were in the full swing of a revival, albeit they had like curdled into the broader nastiness of the slasher by then. But now in the 90s, you would see the return of the playful horror movie from filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez and from Burton, as we're going to talk about later in the episode. And you would see sort of this new generation of people who came up on price reimagining his work more romantically than even he had perhaps intended. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a total love letter to what Burton considered, 
you know, to his collection of horror. Like, I mean, you're not going to go back and find like the Omen or the Exorcist in his collection of go-to horror movies. You'd probably find something like the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or like, you know, um, the invisible like, man, the invisible. Yeah. Ma- oh, totally. Yeah. Or like, you know, the, even like Nosferatu or a lot of the silent films, uh, you know, of that, of that time, the early horror. And like, this is very much almost like a silent film in, in a way. I mean, without the actual corresponding, you know, accompanying Americana elements that you have with, you know, uh, all the different, like Anthony Michael Hall or Winona Ryder and all those characters. But, you know, because most of the, the most interesting and intriguing moments are those when you're just watching. You're not, you're not actually taking in any dialogue. You're just watching almost these moving paintings. It's remarkably built out of physical comedy throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like genuine, like W.C. Fields, Three Stooges yeah. level slapstick well, it's of gestures yore. And, mm-hmm. and stuff. It's not so... Um, reliant on the dialogue as opposed to like these small little moments between characters like looks and touch you know it it's visually what makes you like their romance between Winona Ryder's character and Johnny Depp like it's it's more in the way that they look at each other you know they don't talk too much to each other so you're not really feeling like their connection that way it's more of what they mean to each other i guess like through just longing looks (laughs) well and then what's interesting is that you know when you think about edward scissorhands the it's it's wild to think that this is his third film you know and this actually feels like a debut you know this feels like him coming to his own but no he had already done beetlejuice he had already done you know this is his fourth film actually because he'd done batman the year beforehand which is wild so he'd already done one of the highest grossing films in warner brothers history at that point and yet he seems to be coming into his own on this film which is his fourth which is just just wild to me and you can tell how how personal it was because as you had mentioned Dom like this is very episodic there's it's it's like almost like a string of vignettes and it almost goes back to what his origin was, which was coming up with shorts, you know, these stop motion shorts, these, you know, these little gasps of genius that he was able to kind of create his career on. And, and in that respect, it does feel even like a love letter that in, in that area, too. And in yet in the same breath, you know, we're talking a lot about like the intimacy and the delicacy of it. The movie's also a visual feast, mm-hmm. which, again, it, it's it harkens back to an era when, and Mike and I have been discussing this a lot in advance of this season of filmography coming out. Burton was one of the prime beneficiaries of, of an era in studio filmmaking where if you had a couple of bona fide hits, you were given the keys to the house. Oh, you were greenlit for anything. Yeah. And some absolutely wild shit, both very good and very bad came out of that ethos, but it made for some really riveting movies. I mean, not to turn into this person, especially this early <laughs> in the series, but imagine an Edward Scissorhands being bankrolled now. Oh, no. It wouldn't. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, Jordan Peele definitely, you know, challenges that that argument now. But it's just so funny that we now live in an era where, you know, something like Us or Get Out are people are like, oh, my God, original storytelling. Wow. It's like we live in this era where an original story is this like rare commodity it's because we live in an era of franchises now like we don't get original stories anymore we get remakes and superhero movies and things based off of books because no one can come up with original ideas and i think that's why he stood out in the 90s because you would walk into a movie and not know where it was going Mm -hmm. and and even when you're in development i mean alan arkin had said that 
when he got the script for Edward Scissor's hands, he was kind of baffled. He didn't. He understand. didn't understand it. He was like, "This yeah. doesn't make any sense to me." But then when he got to the sets and he saw a lot of the, you know, the development of it, he was like, "Oh, okay, now this all makes sense to me." And I have to imagine that that sort of mentality of having this creative auteur on your hands was just so lucrative for, to producers because they're like, okay, yeah, we have we have like a, a signature there. We have we have something that that's a little left of the dial. And for me, there's something nostalgic about that to to go back on and and kind of really appreciate that time period where that was valued as opposed to oh, someone has something that's has x number of followers and you know this is a hot commodity and a good ip like there's just something really tragic about that please mike continue to yell at cloud yeah i know i know i sound like an old man but no seriously on the note of our exhaustion with remakes and reboots and adaptations let's jump into talking about an adaptation of classic (laughs) literature so if we started off the 90s with edward scissorhands by the end of the 90s, where Burton was a superstar who had made several more major hits, had nearly made the weirdest goddamn Superman movie of all time, he now ends up tackling, by far, cinema's most violent adaptation of Sleepy Hollow. Postman cannot enter! Why should we die for you? Postman cannot enter. He cannot cross the gate. We have to save ourselves. So, in jumping into Sleepy Hollow, if we're going to talk about the aesthetic discussion of juxtaposition, there is not much of that in Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow is shot in absolutely beautiful grayscale with flourishes of red. And that is about that, because if we talk about his influence being old classic horror movies... This is arguably Burton's most ever earnest shot at making just a lurid hammer horror movie. I just have to say that the tagline for this movie, I was like looking at the poster earlier, is heads will roll. Outstanding. I loved it. I was cracking up at my desk earlier today because it's just so, there's 18 decapitations in this movie. So it's perfect. (laughs) What's really weird about Sleepy Hollow is when you actually read about some of the quotes of Burton's mindset when he was going to this movie, and that he thought it was a novel idea that, oh, wow, I can make a horror movie. Now, if you look back on his you know, filmography at this point, you could pretty much make the argument that the majority of his movies in that career are horror movies, including Batman Returns, which is just like one of the most macabre action, anti-blockbuster films ever released. So... For him to go into this movie and go and and think, all right, now I can make a horror movie. It's almost like someone. It's it's almost like listening to an insane madman because it's like, well, what well, what is Beetlejuice then? You know, what is what is Edward Scissorhands? What are all you know? What what are like parts of like even Pee Wee's you know big adventure? I you know you could always you, someone can make the argument that horror has always been with him in the in, you know from the very beginning. I mean, for Christ's sake, a nightmare before Christmas. I mean that 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 has horror elements in there. So you knew kind of reading about the development of this film, which had been in development hell for years, this is actually going to be going into a period of Burton where he was going to be almost seen as like the savior of these, these projects that had been like sifting forever. Cause let's not forget like the, the, the thing that he was on before this was Superman uh, lives. And that was supposed to be, you know, his big film with Nicolas Cage. And he was going to save Superman from the clutches of uh, development hell, kind of similar to how he did with Batman 
and go so well. And then he would go on to follow this with a development embattled reboot yeah. of Planet of the Apes. Yeah. But that's another story for another episode. <laughs> yeah. In terms of Sleepy Hollow, though, it's very interesting because, yeah, I think this is one of the pure distillations of Burton taking on, you know, there were points in reappraising it where it reminded me of an honest God Giallo movie. Yeah. Because for, you know, for it does have some of the least gory decapitations in movie history, I would argue. The Headless Horseman is a remarkably clean shot, just lines and no viscera every single time. But you also wonder if this had not come out in an era where, you know, the pearl clutching about violence in movies was at a major cultural high, what this movie would have looked like, because it very much has the spirit of just a blood-soaked Victorian horror exercise. Well, because the movie was shot, like, with a blue filter, they had to make the blood, like, a really bright orange for it to stick out. So I think that's why it looks so, like, not, like... like a fantasy blood kind of like when they make aliens blood green so they can like get the PG 13 rating. That's how it feels like it doesn't feel like real blood. Yeah. And and honestly, there's anything with color really pops in this. Like even the fire of this film just really kind of like tears through the the celluloid in a way. I mean, it's a very like nasty looking movie. Like you don't, you, you really do feel as if there's an inescapable dread coupled with this inescapable immortal headless horseman like nobody you really don't feel safe in this movie and that's something that you can't really say with a lot of his other films leading up to this with maybe the exception of like mars attacks or something like that but kind of similar to almost how he models batman the two batman entries there's a claustrophobia at hand that really just it's as if the walls just keep getting you know closer and closer and closer to you because they just get deeper and deeper into the woods and then the town becomes that much more unsafe and i think the that sort of aura that he presents in this movie is is right there from the get-go well, I mean, we literally see martin landau die within the first three seconds of this film which is insane i mean well children die in this film yeah, like there's see- a scene where a pregnant woman gets killed so like he didn't he was fearless when it came to this oh, movie he's, he's merciless i mean even when even and he plays with that notion too because like even when the scene where he's he's literally going through that that uh the cabin where that family's in and then the little boy goes under the the floorboards and you're like oh he's gonna be safe nope he goes back out no, no, he like yeah. <laughs> is about to walk out of the the room and then he hears the boy and he comes back and all you see is just him like shove like put the you know tie up the bag knowing that you he also cut that kid's head off so this is like a merciless movie and he just did not hold back and in which which really sad about looking at it in hindsight is that this also kind of set a template for him because you know i'd mentioned that oh yeah he was like looking he was looked at as the savior to help things out of like development hell but this film also made it seem as if, oh, he could take previous stories and brands and just kind of put his Burton stamp on it. And that is where things go bad. And we're, we'll probably end up discussing, you'll end up discussing in the you know future episodes. But in this case, I think he really does a great job in making it in his own, though. I want to make that, you know. Clear. Well, and it's so distinct in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the thing that got me was just, the lavish staging of a Sleepy Hollow adaptation. I mean, you want to talk about studio projects we don't make anymore, a nine-figure adaptation of a Washington Irving novel. There's a lot of creative license taken, and one of the interesting things is the way in which Burton spins this into kind of a clever whodunit. Mm -hmm. 
But it's also interesting because if we're going to talk about you know this being the genesis of a lot of Burton's latter day filmmaking tendencies, we also need to talk about Johnny Depp developing a lot of his latter day performance tendencies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for you had mentioned that this is pretty much. I mean, we're only four years removed from uh the great jack sparrow uh who would be in pirates of the Caribbean, academy award nominee jack sparrow well i feel like this is the first time you like i mean one of the last times you see johnny depp as kind of like the 90s soft boy that like we have now in timothy chalamet and like this is where he is his last role of like the sweet kind of solemn johnny depp until he goes to you know drunken pirate for the better part of a decade yeah because there's there's almost like this sort of effeminate quality to him that he had in all his a lot of his 90s works um especially with burton maybe with the exception of edward but um especially in edward scissorhands where he is i mean he's he faints he's super anxious movie. in this movie he's yeah totally anxious. <laughs> he's not like at all really the, the the foundation he has answers but it's those around him who are actually kind of propelling this forward. doing anything about it yeah and i and i kind of love that and he you know he has his follies he has his he, you know he he you believe that he has that that sort of like scaredy cat sort of mentality that Ichabod Crane has, but he also, and I go back to that, there's an, an effeminate quality to him that is, is just alluring. It's almost kind of like what he did with, um, what Burton did with a uh, cat woman in like, um, in, in Batman returns, there's a sexiness to him that works on both sides of the dial. And I, and I really like that. There are notes of a heightened sexiness throughout this whole movie, which mm-hmm. is really interesting considering, you know, I mean, it, it's very much to go back to an analogy I drew on earlier. It's the hammer horror mold. Yeah. The for those listening who might not be familiar with what I've now used as a shorthand several times. Hammer was a mid-century British studio who turned out just an innumerable amount of horror classics, many of them starring Christopher Lee in some of his most iconic turns. And Hammer was known, among other things, for this bodice ripping play it to the back of the house kind of horror which between like the sexiness you outline and the absolute lunacy of vampire christopher walken yeah (laughs) you know that it very much hits those heightened hammer notes down to the goriness of it yeah and there's also this sort of like roger corman-esque uh quality to the monsters as well like where you were you know mentioning how like the witch scene is kind of silly. There's a silliness to it, but it also works because... Because it's still scary. Yeah. It, it's still frightening. Mm-hmm. It is still scary while simultaneously also being Beetlejuice B-roll footage. Prove yeah. me wrong. <laughs> That's true. With, uh, <laughs> hey, Jeffrey Jones is in it too. Um, we all love Jeffrey Jones now, but uh, no, at, there, there, there's definitely some... At this point, this almost seems like a greatest hits of what he had done up to that point. And I wonder if that was um, intentional, given that this was released in 99 and this is like the right before the, the you know, the millennium. It, it almost feels as if like he's he's kind of making a statement before he goes into the 2000s where ultimately everything changes. For him. Well, if it says anything, this was one of the last movies to come out on Laserdisc mm. ever. So that is an old sentence. Yeah, yes. exactly. I, I even put on my notes like this should make you guys feel old <laughs> because you probably have owned a Laserdisc. I did own a Laserdisc <laughs> and I'll thank you to not speak disrespectfully about them. <laughs> it's interesting because at this point when this film is released, so it was about November 99. So it was my first year of high school and I was probably just 
absolutely enamored with DVD culture. So I had probably just had Blair Witch and I would probably be excited for this to come out on DVD with like commentary and, and, and whatnot. But what I do remember of this is that there was merchandise for Sleepy Hollow and it was a lot of like there were, you know, I know McFarlane toys made a huge line and I have a point for all this. I'm not just trying to go into nostalgia zone. You love, love toys, love toys. <laughs> but what, what this, what this also did was that it, it started showing the commercialism of, of Burton that extended beyond just IP. Now, granted Batman, they were literally handing out pamphlets with toys when that movie came out. I remember walking out of the theaters in 89 and they were handing out pamphlets of, Hey, here's how you could buy all the merchandise for, for, for Batman. That's not Burton. You know, and that wasn't the case for Batman Returns. And honestly, at that point, you couldn't even find shirts with Edward Scissorhands. But when Sleepy Hollow came around, there was almost this like realization that, and maybe it's because in the late 90s, you had a lot of like this sort of dark metal, new metal type thing. There, there was this sort of insistency of like, of, of embracing the sort of fringe. And I feel like Burton at this moment is when he starts becoming fully realized, you know, he realizes this at that moment. Well, you cannot go into a hot topic now and not find like Alice in Wonderland socks and like a Nightmare Before Christmas bracelets. Like they have, he's made himself into like a merchandise king. Oh yeah. But, but, but the thing that's so ironic about this is that this all starts when he's absolutely leaving this area. Because when is the next movie that it w- would come even close to capturing this sort of gothic uh, mentality? I mean, I, I... Of his? I don't think he does it again. I think this is the... I mean, maybe um, Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney oh, Todd. Sweeney Todd. Todd. <laughs> or, 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 or even like Corpse Bride and whatnot. But not really, though. Like, th- th- this really does kind of feel like he's closing a book until he kind of revisits it, you know, in the, the two other films that we're going to be discussing tonight. But I, it, it, it does feel... Again, like he is of of mind that this is a, a, an era that he's moving on from. And... So, you know, we've brought up the hot topic aesthetic side of Burton a couple times now. And as we come into this next movie, I want to start actually unpacking what we mean by that a little more. Because we're going to jump from 1999 to 2012. In between those two places, a bunch of stuff happens, especially as it relates to Tim Burton. And we're going to jump into Dark Shadows. Are you stoned or something? They tried stoning me, my dear. It did not work. When did they start allowing women of the night on this date ground? And for the sake of disclosure... When you read the accompanying dissected on Consequence of Sound about Tim Burton, our ranking of his films from best to worst, Dark Shadows is at the bottom of that list. And we are going to talk about why. And I want to start off with the point at which I think, quote unquote, hot topic Burton talk began, which was the fallout of Alice in Wonderland, which I'm going to abbreviate this because we're going to go into much more detail in a couple weeks on the show about Alice in Wonderland and the can of worms it opened. As it's relevant to our discussion here, it introduced a much higher gloss version of the Burton aesthetic, and you are going to see that on full display here. With Dark Shadows. <laughs> well, because I feel like it begins with this like a decent amount of gloominess, like at first. Mm-hmm. And then it's just scattered with this like kind of groovy soundtrack throughout the whole thing that I feel like is almost distracting you from how bad the writing is for it. Here's, here's a good example 
uh, over the last 10, 15 years of, of the reboots, remakes, and whatever you want to call them, uh, era of Hollywood that we've been in, we've seen a lot of veteran filmmakers go back to their roots and try to kind of re- rekindle their, their past flares and what made them who they are. Most of them have failed. You know, there's exceptions with like George Miller with Mad Max Fury Road, who's able to come back and is, it's as if nothing happened and he's just back to where he was and he learned new tricks. Um, we've seen Sam Raimi do it with uh, the pilot for Ash vs. Evil Dead, where he can just come right in and do it and, uh, again. And he did it also with uh, Drag Me to Hell in 2009. And Burton, by, by, by every, by, <laughs> this by design should have been a home run for, for, for Tim Burton. This is ready made like IP that hasn't really been talked about, hasn't been discussed. This should have been perfect. This should have been his Mars attacks of the aughts. And no. (laughs) And I think that's very interesting because if we talk about the dark shadow source material, for those who may not know, it was an adaptation of a fairly long running 1960s television series that began as soap opera and eventually nosedived into the full tilt camp and occult. And on that basis, yes, on paper, this is perfect material for totally. Burton. It is. It's got that rich dichotomy that he like absolutely thrives in traditionally. It's and... a synthesis of everything he's done from, you know, his influences to his own style and even his capacity to, you know, modernize, as we were talking about with Edward Scissorhands a bit ago, to modernize the whimsical of an older era to make it new and fresh again. And instead you get, as Samantha pointed out a moment ago, swinging 70s tunes. Yeah. Because if you want to understand what goes wrong with Dark Shadows, you know, we can talk about Edward Scissorhands. And I feel like a lot of people have an understanding of what Edward Scissorhands is, whether you've seen it or not. Same with Sleepy Hollow. You know the Ichabod Crane story and the Headless Horseman to some degree or another. If you tried to sit down with your family or loved ones and explain to them what the movie Dark Shadows is about, how would you articulate that? (laughs) It's tough. Uh, uh, here's a kooky story about a vampire and and he's kind of back to the future with vampires i mean it's a fucking mess and i and i and i and i wonder and i've thought about this like would this have worked with without someone like depp because at this point when i'm sure you're going to talk about this in a moment but like Depp is absolutely sleepwalking throughout this entire movie. And maybe that's what he thought he should do, considering he's a vampire that's awakened in the 70s. <laughs> but it, it, there's just zero charisma that 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 he that we just talked about with Edward Scissorhands. You know, it's like the, this total polar opposite of that performance. Because as the flip side of the coin, we were just discussing in context of Sleepy Hollow a few minutes ago. Over a decade, several Captain Jack outings later, the kind of incorrigible mugging that pops up in little bits of Sleepy Hollow is now his stock and trade as a star, very specifically. Mm -hmm. And for better and largely for worse, this is a movie which directly trades on that version of Johnny Depp. Well, there's even like a scene where he first gets released from his coffin where he kills like every single one of the um, construction workers. And it's supposed to be scary. Like it, you can tell that Burton wanted it to like frighten its viewers <laughs> and it doesn't. And like I was telling you guys earlier is that there's no sense of danger in this film. It's no one. Everyone is safe. You don't feel like anything's going to happen to any of the main characters. You don't feel like anything like it's it's 
trying to be campy, but it's unsuccessfully doing so. It's not fun for anyone. <laughs> no, it, it, it's like what we were. It's like what we were talking about earlier. Adam. It's like watching someone try to tell a bad joke and like try to carry it off as, as such. And you're like, oh yeah, I know, I know that was a pretty bad joke, but we'll get you in the next one. But it's like does. laughing at a bad pun your friend made. You know, it's just not good. And, it, and, it, and it's remarkable because the film itself has such a ready-made cast for, you know, for Tim Burton. I mean, you have his the return of Michelle Pfeiffer, for Christ's sakes. Like, I remember when I heard about that and I was so excited. And she is so underused in this movie. And it's almost as if you forget she's in there. Well, and there are a lot of really interesting character notes being hit by everyone from her to Helena Bonham Carter as the family psychotherapist to even Ava Green gnawing on the scenery like her life depends on it as the antagonist. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. It is just it is a movie completely subsumed at every step by the idea that 2012 Johnny Depp doing his post-Jack Sparrow version of a Burton leading turn is enough to carry this two-hour movie. And And I don't want to lay all the blame at his feet, but I think, like, a sizable portion of the pie chart goes there. I mean, it's even telling that, like, Tim uh, Tim Burton reunited with uh, Danny Elfman for this movie, and it still didn't work. You know, he he has all his elements here, and he just, none of it, like, is in tandem. Because you even say what Danny Elfman's score sounded like, it's so drowned out and forgotten because of the fucking 70s hits that are being, like, down your gullet the whole movie. Yeah, the children, they love Alice Cooper. Yeah, yeah. and as much as, like, that first scene where the train is going, like, the Amtrak train um, is going by, it's, like, beautiful to look at, but it's just, it's not, it's, like, the sheen over it, the CGI sheen that makes it feel like it's not even a real train going through a real, like, area. and And that's one of the reasons why, for sure, it doesn't work, because you have to kind of buy that it's another fish out of the water situation and where is he out of the water he's in this also fictional sort of area so if there's any sort of grounded sensibilities at play it would maybe work but at the same time but it it just feels like you're watching like shrek or something it's 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 like a cartoon and this is a point i want to bring up in context of latter-day burton that we'll probably end up returning to a few times throughout this series there is a point Arguably, obviously, the opinions of filmography of filmmakers podcast are not final, (laughs) but um, there is absolutely this sense that at some point the Burton style became untethered from the emotional center that always gave birth to the style in turn. And it just became style for the sake of style. Mm -hmm. And we can have dialogue all day about when that point happened. But I think we can reach a general consensus that Dark Shadows was after it. Yeah. Well, even like the CGI of Bella Heathcote, I think the like the Phoenix character that like never dies, her CGI of her like ghost version in the house is so awful. Like mm-hmm. it looks like what like a knockoff version of what Guillermo del Toro did in Crimson Peak. Like those ghosts were beautiful to look at and they were CGI. Whereas mm-hmm. this ghost, uh, I know, agree to disagree. All right, <laughs> fuck. Um, I personally love that I movie know, yeah. and you hate it. I do. Anyways, um, I think that she's just, she doesn't look like spooky or even cool. Like she just looks like a pillowcase. <laughs> she actually looks like an extra that would be in like 13 ghosts or like ghost ship. Like it looks like that. And that's sort of not horror. a good thing. Okay. No. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to 
have you on here to talk bad about Ghost Ship, all right? <laughs> hey, that opening for Ghost Ship is great. Oh, Emily Browning is great in that opening with the fish wire. Yeah, Love no, it. It, wonderful. But the the ghosts itself look as if, like, there, there's a part of 2000, early 2000s horror in which it just got lazy where all they did was just film the actors and put on a blue sheet. Well, yeah, on let's them. There you go. put a CGI filter over it. Yeah. I mean, the ghost in Casper in 1995 looked more realistic than this. Lo- love Bill Pullman as ghost dad. Oh, me too. I love when he comes back and we're supposed to laugh as if like, hey, remember when they, he's killed your dad like, you know, five minutes ago? Also, on a little side note, we're on Christina Ricci because she was also in, uh, you know, Sleepy Hollow. But there's a part in uh, Casper in which they twist uh, a, a man's head around for laughs. And this is an actual human being. And we're supposed to think these characters are ghosts and they're funny. Whatever. Sorry. Strangely, somehow <laughs> that's a segue into the next thing I want to discuss about Dark Shadows. Oh, okay. Which is the movie's mismatched tone. Samantha mm-hmm. spoke to this at the beginning of our discussion. This is not a movie that knows what it wants to be. Sometimes it is frightening. Sometimes it is as explicitly sexual as Burton gets as a filmmaker. At other times, it is going for the whimsy of Alice in Wonderland era Burton. Mm-hmm. And at others, it is an homage to boomer culture. I I genuinely, it is very hard to pin down what the film is because it feels confused in tone in a way that isn't even particularly engaging. Exactly. It's like Disney, it's, it's almost like he took like, when he worked for Warner Brothers and then Disney and tried to like mesh the two and that it was like supposed to be kid friendly but also for adults but it didn't work like most movies like that do. But here, here's the thing that we also haven't really hit on that that the, the reason why this doesn't work is that Burton needs a good screenwriter and you know you go back to like something that our dissected piece are like you know harpens on like a big point is the fact that like something like Beetlejuice which is considered one of his greatest films and we put that in our top three that screenplay is just is it's just it's it's a whole development of chaos, but it all worked because you had the right minds that were that understood what the source material was going to do, and by the end of t- by the final time it got to the you know the finish line, everything was in its right place. With this, you have, and this is gonna I'm sorry if anyone's a fan of him, but Seth Graham Smith who is best known for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, basically rewriting, you know, a Jane Austen classic and making and punk, uh, punching up with stupid jokes. And honestly, like, given his his sort of his resume, I'm not surprised that this movie doesn't work because he's done, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. It's and, so bad. Uh, you know, he did he did some some he's he's rewritten the new like he's he's did a he's a producer for the new child's play. He's did the flash that has been in development hell. I mean, you need a fucking great screenwriter when it comes to because you need the, the the mechanics underneath it you need the blueprint and- well and i think if we're talking about you know inconsistency in tone and him losing that sense of heart a little bit this is a great way to jump over into our fourth discussion film 2016's miss peregrine's home for peculiar children which yes i am reading from my screen every time i do it <laughs> um peculiars have been persecuted through the ages hence we live in places like this I'm a type of peculiar called an imbrine. Yeah, you turn into a bird. Well, I do, yes. But that's not very useful. An imbrine's main skill is the manipulation of time. We choose a safe place, a safe day, and create a loop. What do you mean? Well, a loop reserves the last 24 hours. Reset the loop, and the day is yours to live in again. Reset it daily, and you can stay there forever. This is an interesting counterpoint to Dark Shadows in turn then, because 
I don't think either of you would disagree this is every bit as glossy as any of his latter-day work. Mm -hmm. And yet, in adapting the first of a series of young adult novels, as so many other filmmakers of the last 10 years have been tasked with doing, Burton manages to bring a little bit of the old charm back. Mm -hmm. And he does it almost automatically. Uh, the, The cold open for this movie is just fantastic. And it kind of takes you back to that suburban hell of Edward Scissorhands because so much of this movie, again, just what we were talking about with Edward Scissorhands, it's that juxtaposition of reality versus perception of reality. And, you know, similar to Big Fish, the the whole story concerns itself with, you know, a boy that's trying to find and come to terms with his grandfather and the who he really was and and trying to believe the the larger than life tall tales that he had. And I don't know if Burton just kind of was itching, you know, old wounds or, you know, just kind of hearkening back to his old spirit, but he does get that again. And you're right. It is still glossy and there's still, a, you know, a lot of CG that, that that's being utilized here. But I think because he's able to start this movie at a sense of place that absolutely feels palpable and grounded and there's a dullness to the reality that you want to get out of that sort of insistency to leave that reality is is so crucial that he doesn't have in any of the other movies that especially not in dark shadows and and especially not in a lot of the the mid-aughts movies that you would do whether it's charlie and the chocolate factory or alice in wonderland or you know any of his other cgi palooza movies because you need that dichotomy because otherwise what is the sense of where is your central sense of wonder you have no perspective at that point and this movie does get that Well, I didn't even know. So I had read the first book of the series and I was excited to go see the movie because of that. And I didn't even know it was a Tim Burton film when I had seen it. Like even when I said, and and this is coming from someone who reads the fucking IMDb trivia before every goddamn movie she sees. (laughs) Okay. And I didn't even know it was a Tim Burton movie. And I think like that's kind of what works for it, which is sad considering that we all love his aesthetic and that's what made a name for him. Mm -hmm. But this movie is so like... Yeah, it does have that shine. It has that gleam, but it's so different from Alice in Wonderland and that the story, I, I, I think it goes back to what you were saying, Mike, is that he needs a good story. And although he's adapting someone else's story, he does like this is coming out of an era that like everyone's trying to adapt young adult novels. Mm-hmm. We got Beautiful Creatures. We got the Mortal Instrument series, which both fucking bombed. Okay. And I've read both of those book series. <laughs> I may have not. But I did read those books and I knew that those movies were bad. So I went into this kind of thinking they're probably going to botch this really cool book series that I really enjoyed because it's different, especially for YA. It's got these like throughout the book, um, the author had actually like found a bunch of old Polaroids at flea markets and he had like based the story around those like weird photos of people he had found. Mm. And in the book, like, there's all those pictures. It's it's such a fun read. And so I was really excited and it, it lived up to, to what I thought, like I, what I thought was going to be a shitty movie. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because now not only was this very much like one of the late arrivals to the YA boom of the 2010s or whatever decade name we've given that one now. It's interesting because you're now seeing a Tim Burton that even more so than Dark Shadows has now stuck around long enough as a major voice in American film to see his work become influential across the board in pop culture, you know, like I can't exactly speak off the cuff to whether it was a direct influence on the novels or not, but stories of misfits feeling out of place in a repressive world 
those are the dominant medium of pop culture storytelling at this point. Your Harry Potters, your endless litany of Harry Potter imitators. Yes. <laughs> your Hunger Games is, and exactly. then the other litany of Hunger Games imitators and so on. You know, like stories of youth rebellion have migrated over the past few decades from being counterculture to being dominant culture. Mm-hmm. And now, in the middle of it, you see Burton very much jumping onto a wave that he, in some way, helped contribute to inventing. Yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely like the 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 old bard coming down from you know his roost and to, to be able to talk again. And it, it, it's it's a very it's understated Burton in certain respects, and I like that about it because he needed to kind of be scaled down a little bit. Uh, because I, I don't really think he goes overboard too much here. No, I, mean, I don't either. I, I think like especially that scene where they're underwater mm-hmm. in the ship. That's like my favorite scene in the whole movie because it's so beautiful. And although it's definitely CGI, it doesn't feel like so CGI to where no. you're like your eye rolling. You know, it's it's still very pretty. No, I actually even watching it today, I was just thinking like this looks as if they they're they are filming this underwater. Like they're I mean, floating. Looks, yeah, yeah. I and mean, there, there's a realism here that he hasn't really been able to exhibit since God, since Big Fish or maybe Big Eyes. I mean, it, there's just there's a realism at hand and again you need that you need to have that sort of grounded feel well not even like the music in this movie like and i think he almost like excelled by not maybe having danny elfman do the score here is because like although i love although it's not the score i love the use of run rabbit throughout the whole Mm. movie i love that song and um the score overall just has this very like i was a big fan of the bioshock franchise like video games and it has that kind of old timey, like like when you were first going into Rapture in the b- beginning of the video game, you almost like expect this like old radio to turn on and like someone start talking to you, kind mm. of like that. I well, think it's just very like fifties aesthetic. The music for yeah, I guess forties because no. technically it takes place in the forties, but I mean I just I love that old timey kind of sound. Well, and it has at its best the free for all eccentricity of a lot of the Burton things from those little an- anachronistic notes that you've been pointing out to even just the sheer weirdness of this is a YA adaptation. I mean, there are a lot of odd flourishes that are very of a piece with the kind of stuff Burton does. It's a good marriage of source material and filmmaker in exactly. that respect, if anything. Although there is one sequence and I was laughing about it today in the office is that when they're at the very finale um, when they're the carnival, all of a sudden Aww. it kind of switches to this EDM uh, sequence that I think it's supposed to show that it's there in 2016. Um, and it, it is jarring in the sense, I mean, it still works um, and it adds a little bit of a, like a hip pump to it, but there is a, it, it is like, wait, what happened? What, what, what is going on here? It's, it's like, hip. It's hip in that. How do you do fellow kids? Like that kind of way. <laughs> so I, the, the, I think for, for the most part, like a, a lot of the, the materials here work where it doesn't work is that it takes an hour and 10 minutes to actually get to any sort of conflict. You know, this is a film that starts off very swift. You get through, it sets up the whole storyline within five to 10 minutes. You know exactly where this is going to go. And by the time you follow, you know, the, the boy to where he has to be on this Walsh Island, they're just you're just there for like 55 that's minutes that's how the and book is though too so I like know, you, you almost can't like he struck very close to the source material and that's fine but it, i i don't think that 
for me, the pacing, it just slows it down to where I actually do start feeling like, all right, where are we going with this? All right. I know that this kid's invisible and, you know, this one other kid can like bring back to life all these little weird things and use them as puppets. But what are they going to do with this? Why is it leading on? I mean, you don't even fall, find out about really the hollows until an hour and 10 minutes in this movie. And you already you only have like at that point, 45 minutes left. I mean, just a lot. But it just seems as if they could have been a little more economical. But, you know. Well, and it also gives you time, for better or worse, to wander around a Burton world again in yeah. a way that a yes. lot of his latter-day work does not really leave breathing room for. No, that's true. That's true. And Which is nice to have. I, ju- I just think that once they actually do start introducing the conflict and you see that hollow crawl up on the, the, the ground and Ava Green has to shoot it down, it's just like that's when my interest starts peaking and it's only an hour and 15 minutes into the movie. And by that point... We're at the finale in Beetlejuice. I guess I could see. I I understand because I think a good filmmaker shouldn't need that much time to make us care about its characters. But I think that he's just kind of like forming us. Like like Ava Green's character strikes me as like a spooky Mary Poppins, basically. So I think that that time is just kind of showing us like what she means to the children and like setting up the the storyline for where like it. It's he's trying to make you care about these characters. Well, and steering us over then into the technical talk half of our discussion, I actually want to stay on Peregrine because I want to start discussing character design because all of it rules. Puppies, pandas, piglets, and more are all waiting to be saved in Pet Rescue Saga. Just match two or more blocks of the same color to clear the level and free those lovable pets. Remember to plan your moves so you don't run out. It's easy and fun to play, challenging to master, and a great way to bring a little color to your day. From the makers of Candy Crush Saga, King presents Pet Rescue Saga. Download it from the App Store or Google Play. Hi, I'm Brendan Dunn. Matt Welty. I'm Joel Puma from the Complex Sneakers Podcast. And this is a Staycast from Acast. I know it's a challenging time for many, but please do follow your local government's advice. I'm based out of New York City, and I'm currently practicing social distancing. While you're staying at home or doing social distancing, here's a recommendation for another great podcast for you to listen to. Why not try Load Management or Watch Less? Available on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. And in talking about the designs of Miss Peregrine, one of the big takeaways that I think everyone here had was just how interesting looking a lot of the character design is in a way that, you know, a lot of Burton's best work hits upon and had sort of come and gone in some of his latter era material. No, totally. I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is just how scary the characters are, you know, for the first time in forever. Even outside of Burton's work, monsters look jarring and very unnerving. You know, for my my for my dissected write up, I, that, that I stressed upon that big time, and just how, how like when the hollow first goes over that ledge to go, go towards Ava Green, as I was mentioning earlier, it is legitimately frightening, and you feel just like Butterfield standing there, or you know, I guess perched there watching this happen, and. The creature is CGI, but there seems to be this almost like clay-like um, look to it that just makes it seem as if it's of reality, but also not of reality. And and 
granted a lot of the design harkens back to some of like Pan's Labyrinth with uh, Guillermo del Toro or even with uh, Clive Barker's Nightbreed a little bit, but there's just uh, just it's just so jarring and 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 I don't think that this movie would work as much if the monsters didn't legitimately frighten you because that sense of danger and that sense of caution is just so integral to the plot to the point where I, I even kind of uh, throw some shade to J.K. Rowling because although this the similarities to Harry Potter are there. I actually think the the villains in this are far more. Um, I think the stakes are higher with these villains. I think they're hmm. very scary. And I think you're being a goddamn hater. On my <laughs> yeah, podcast. I was like, I can't agree. I'm with not that. though. I mean, look, I, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't remember Voldemort eating eyeballs and you know, uh, like a pile of eyeballs. Uh, just mass and, killing people. Yeah, yeah, but you just kill them. It doesn't mean that they're gonna like torture them by tearing out their eyeballs and all you know, right. this sort of stuff. Thursday morning headline: Michael Rothman unimpressed by genocide. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. But it's no, true. I, I honestly do think in the case of Miss Peregrine, you know, if we're going to talk about this movie recapturing some of the old magic, so to speak, I think a lot of it comes from look overall. And we sort of hit on this in the end of our discussion on the film itself. But, you know, a lot of the set pieces are distinct. They are distinguishable. And I know that that sounds like a pretty low water mark, but for a lot of modern filmmaking, especially big would-be tentpole movies like this, having a bunch of set pieces that are individually memorable kind of comes at a premium. Well, they filmed on location for this one, so they're not like on a set. Which and is I, great. Yeah, that's why when it's what he needs to start doing again, I think, to create another successful movie or memorable movie like that, I guess is what I'm, yeah. I mean. But um, yeah, no, it's like, it looks real. Everything mm-hmm. looks like you're actually, you could step foot there. And that's what I, I can put myself into the story better that way. I, I'm also a big fan. And this is something that's going to probably be big this year in horror of, uh, of terror in the sun and in the sunlight you know, we're going to be seeing that with Midsommar, yeah. uh, with uh, Ari Aster's new movie. And you can kind of see a lot of it in Us with Jordan Peele, uh, Jordan Peele's latest film. And, 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 and you get that here. I mean, the, the first glimpse of the, the, the true monster, for the most part, or the, not a glimpse, but the, the full-on look happens in broad daylight. And that's such an interesting, like, kind of polar juxtaposition that Burton does so well. You know, I mean, look at, like, Beetlejuice. The scariest thing in that whole movie is the sandworm, and it happens in a desert that has the sun beaming down. Like, and and still, it's so fucking terrifying. And, And the fact that he's able to capture that here certainly you know, proves the notion that he is totally hearkening back to his past. Well, it demonstrates a faith in your effects team and in the look of your movie to not, you know, there are still sequences of this movie that are definitely bathed in the CG obscuring dark tones that are all the rage nowadays. But a lot of this movie kind of encourages and even challenges you to stare at it head on in again, broad daylight. And there's something to be said for that kind of confidence in the kind of impression it gives to the movie at large. Well, it's Mm -hmm. because it's not gritty. Like, I mean, the last 15 years, I feel like has been like Batman goes gritty. Superman goes gritty. It's, It's just like, it's next we'll get like Dora the Explorer goes gritty. I, I don't we're actually that's not a joke. That. We oh my god. Are. <laughs> As it came out of my mouth, I was like, God, that's a reality that I now live in. But what I mean is that it doesn't feel like he's trying to make this like dark and scary and ominous. It's just it just is by itself. Yeah, and actually he was one of the first critics of that whole like Nolan Nolan esque uh, gritty version. Like I remember when Dark Knight came out. 
and they asked him like oh what did you think about the batman movie he's like i kind of miss when superheroes like being superheroes <laughs> you know it's like well, i kind of miss that tim sort burton of magic. movies were tim burton movies yeah you true, know true yeah because at that point i think he was just hot off of like you know alice in wonderland or something but either way um yeah I, I, that, that that sort of that that sort of central location of the house and how you get to actually go to rooms of the house it's it it is very Hogwarts esque, like in the terms of the sets. Like you do feel as if you are in these halls, and and that's something that you don't really get in Dark Shadows. Like there's so many moments in Dark Shadows that you, I feel like we're in these grand ballrooms of like green rooms. <laughs> well, it's genuine world building. Yeah. It feels like he's creating something out of nothing, which for reading is you have to do that, and it's based off a book. It's like really easy to disassociate that way yeah. with like fiction. Well, and. To return to the point of Dark Shadows, as far as look, you know, if we're talking about Miss Peregrine as a really positive example of the glossy Burton look being effective in a modern Mm -hmm. context, Dark Shadows is then sort of the opposite end of that spectrum, where it's something, it's painted in a way that does not suit the film. No, there's like an uncanny valley to it, where you almost are watching these things and you're like, all right, well, there's Johnny Depp walking in the forest. And a set that was clearly supposed to be dressed up to look like the 70s. And then the next scene, we're going to go to a room that should have been the easiest thing to make and just find some random abandoned castle in, you know, outside of England. But we're going to go to a giant sound screen that they probably filmed Attack of the Clones in. And that, to me, is still the most baffling thing when you have a guy that literally made a name in set design for the most part. And and that's just, it's it's so tragic to see a guy that is working with, again, all the right puzzle pieces and has no idea how to put it together anymore. Because, and to the point of the right puzzle pieces, you know, as we talked about in the first half, this is very much of a piece with the traditional Burton look. Mm -hmm. And for this to feel like such a deviation is, yes, an issue of tone, but I think, again, it comes back to the Disney coat of paint on a hard PG-13 traditional gothic Burton movie. Well, if anything, I think this movie should be, like, brighter, you know, to, like, represent the 70s. I mean, when I think of the 70s, as someone born in 1993, I think of, like, yellows and, like, browns Mm -hmm. and kind of, like, orange. And if it weren't for, like, the lava lamp and the hippie van, I wouldn't even be able to tell that this is set in the 70s. It's... It's funny because, like, in the 90s, I remember watching, like, the Addams Family remakes uh, and and thinking that those were Burton movies when they were really just Barry Sonnenfeld pictures. (laughs) And yet those films, especially Addams Family Values, hits exactly the right tone and the right notes and the right sort of feel that this movie should have done. In that you have these grotesque sort of characters existing in this sort of heightened American reality and it works because everything feels in in line with each other and in sync. And this just feels as if like an alien was trying to like, or you asked a computer to paint a vision of the 70s and it just took a bunch of images from Google and slapped them together or it something. Honestly, it just... feels like Eddie Murphy's Haunted Mansion. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. me. Well, it's just so like, it's just a phoned in haunted house story. And and down to the point of like the way that they even do the the makeup for Depp, like there's just nothing really new about it. It it, it, it just seems so like it's it, Mad vampire. Hatter makeup, man. yeah, it, yeah. It is. But it almost feels like SNL making a, a Tim Burton like digital short. 
you know, like when they did the Wes Anderson horror movie. Like this feels like, oh look, it's here comes Dark Shadows, Tim Burton's next movie, starring, of course, Helena Bottom Carter. It's just like it hits on all the it checks all the boxes of the sort of tropes and expectations we would have, and it just feels soulless even then. But to pop over to then to a more positive example of the exact same kind of hyper stylization, yeah. let's pop back to Edward Scissorhands because there you use that exact same sense of heightened reality, but in service of something really lovely with arguably more severe stakes, despite a lot fewer people being murdered on screen. <laughs> yeah. Well, Edward Scissorhands is filmed on location yeah. too in Florida. So look at like the ones that we like are always the ones that are filmed on location or not on a green screen on a set, you know? Well, and it should be noted that like he originally even is going to go to Burbank to actually film this. And he thought, well, no, it's actually this moved on too much. So I need to go to this like, you know, sort of unknown uh, Disney, I think endorsed or Disney stamped uh, suburbia in Florida that had been kind of untouched and still had those like fifties motifs. And to have that sort of dedication to a sense of place is, it's just so weird that that was that we're dealing with a guy that is gone almost George, full George Lucas and seems to be just so lazy with being able to abandon that. And honestly, like Edward Scissorhands would not work if it was using the same sort of, uh, production styles of that that he's been using the past 10 years well it feels and i think a good word for this here is tactility mm -hmm. this is what we've kind of been dancing around in a lot of our conversations i would argue there is a physicality to a lot of burton's early work that you do lose with a lot of the modern movies and i mean that's also the story of hollywood in yeah. the last 30 years if we're gonna have a broader conversation but as relevant here you know like what heightens the reality of Edward Scissorhands is really nothing more than just a beautiful rendition of the color wheel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, think about how many colors are in this movie, just in the house. Just alone. the homes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the one room that he pokes through on the, you know, with the, the waterbed, you have like yellows, you have oranges, you have greens, you have blues, you have all these browns from leftover, you know, beds that seem like they're in the bunk bed for a home in the 70s or late 60s I like mean, that wood it's like the bunk bed the sun actually has a bunk bed yeah <laughs> and, and, and and there's just such a a flair to it all that you don't even have to you can just get lost in those little details and and that's great and, and even when they go downstairs into alan arkin's um basement and he has the bar there and it looks like a bar that we would find in any Midwestern basement. Looks a little cheersy. It does. It looks a little cheersy. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks like your uncle's bar that he would have created in the basement. And that's that. There's such a a sort of again. It's that DIY thing of just like he he built it himself. Like he he literally you know put these together based on memories he probably had from his upbringing. And that's not the case here anymore with his new movies. These are all like what you expect when you think of the 70s or creepy castle or there's just no signature flair to it and that's that's something that edward scissorhands just capitalizes on and just runs with success and i think what's really interesting there too is that even when there's sort of this preciousness to a lot of the set dressing it's always played in really unexpected ways i think especially of how often edward scissors this these marvels of prop design are just played for gentle fish out of water mm -hmm. comedy. 
I mean, if we're going to talk about set design, I, we have to talk about the topiaries. The dragon, or not dragons, I guess they're dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, they're dinosaurs. He likes making dinosaurs, <laughs> and he likes making and a lot families, of animals. And families, like, he, when when Diane Weiss' character runs out and goes, it's us. Yeah. Like, she's so, God, she's just the sweetest character. And she's so excited that this just boy that she takes in has this talent out of something that should make him less than, yeah. you know, typically. Yeah, the topiary animals is is probably They're beautiful. Yeah, and it's it, and it's definitely cut from the same cloth as everything that um <laughs> that the that's in the house, the postmodern stuff that they bring into the house for Beetlejuice, all those sculptures and all those oh, designs. Oh, the weird shit. Yeah, yeah. That she thinks Catherine O'Hara's character yeah. thinks is so revolutionary. It's just so great and then they all come to life and they all have this sort of like weird primal qualities to them and with with uh, and again, it's it, it almost seems as if Burton's trying to say something about Disney too, because if you go to Disney World or any of the theme parks, they all have those sort of topiary animals. They all have that sort of animation come to life through nature. This weird sort of relationship there, and uh, you know, there's certainly commentary that he's saying in that respect as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it gives that quirky edge to it, to something that we all take for granted in suburbia, which are trees, you know. And well, and even the pet's haircuts that he yeah. does, too. Like, they really had to do that, you know, and it's just like these little puffs of fur that, like, it really is an art, you yeah. know. Like, it's almost like he's DIY for so long, and then he sells his soul to, like, HGTV and, like, gets this, like, <laughs> fancy shit over everything. And it's like, we just wanted the... The normal, like almost like a film student trying to make a movie feel, you know, and, and it working. And honestly, if there's one exchange where he has both worlds, I think Sleepy Hollow is that. Because, you know, and I'm going to make my own transition there. <laughs> because honestly, <laughs> I, I feel as if Sleepy Hollow is just that perfect match between having a shitload of money and still having the aesthetic and the, the sort of punk rock mentality to say, no, I still got this. Well, and it's yet another exercise in menacing light yes. to return to that point, albeit in a very different here, tone here. As shot by Emmanuel Lubeshki, you know, this this is a movie where all light is cold. No light feels safe. No light even feels comfortable. Mm -hmm. Light is filtered through fog. It is frigid. It is of the Virginia landscape. Oh, this is a cold, 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 cold like environment that you're in. Even so cold that they actually built on the soundstage, like, or built a soundstage for Western Wood, which is kind of like the area yeah. where he goes through. Anyways, they built it so they could control like the weather that was there and the lighting. So everything was under their control. Nothing was happening that they didn't want to happen. <laughs> which is so cool because you totally believe and buy all the, the sort of conditions that are happening in this world. I mean, when, when it starts, when the, when the, it's weird because there's a distinct difference between the daylight and the darkness, but there's not much, you know, it's just this like sort of exchange between this like grimy gray to pitch black. Yeah. It's like an oblique black. Yeah. It's just a Gothic masterpiece. Look that I, I think is just such a gorgeous display of what happens when you have a, a ton of money and still a creator that gives a damn. Well, and they used a lot of stop motion, like animation techniques in this. It almost feels like that. Like there mm -hmm. are parts like 
even when the branches yes. like move and stuff like that, it feels like animated, but not like CGI. You know, it feels like the dinosaurs felt like in Jurassic Park, like real, but you know that it's fake. You yeah. know, it's like before they made the Whomping Willow CGI, you know, like it was so much cooler when in Chamber of Secrets when it's like there and as opposed to in Prisoner of Azkaban when it's like all animated. Well, and down to even the designs of especially the gore animation and the headless horseman itself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a practicality to it that feels physical and makes it all the more eerie. And and then something unbelievable about the sets that they build too, because it's an actual village. You know, when when you see Casper Van Dien, God, that's a name that nobody talks about anymore. <laughs> uh, when you see him just roaming around the town right before the little the little child gets his head cut off, the you see this scene. you see this <laughs> town just behind him. And it's exactly what you would imagine while reading Washington Irving, except it doesn't have any of the autumnal sort of flourishes that he puts in his story. And that's where you get Burton. And that's what's so it's just this brilliant subversion. But it really wouldn't work if you didn't buy that there is an actual town there. Well, because it's a vision of a forest, for instance, Mm -hmm. that does not exist in real life. No, you can have approximations of that color, but you that desaturation is unnatural. It is the very look of a storybook forest well, it's because they a built, storybook colonial town they built like the stairs and the rooms and all the floors for stuff so like when they're walking downstairs like they're actually walking towards something it mm-hmm. doesn't it's not like when you're watching a sitcom and it ends and you know that it ends when they walk a little further everything was actually built for the the set like there's no melvilles uh, on top of chairs so before we move on with the categories As always, I want to end our talk of the visual with the lasting image, which is everybody going around and talking about their favorite single shot from any of this episode's four discussed films. Uh, Mike, why don't you start us off? Well, hey, we're in Sleepy Hollow, and we're going to stay in Sleepy Hollow for this little bit because I love when they're specifically Burton kind of tickles his, uh, you know, past with Disney and kind of touches upon the original Ichabod and the Headless Horseman. And it's when Johnny Depp is walking through the bridge. And this is pretty much almost like a a metaphor for Burton departing from the actual source material. Because you have him going through the bridge and you hear the Ichabod, Ichabod. And there's this great shot where he's in the the tunnel or the bridge or the whatever. And right behind him is when you see the Headless Horseman. I mean, it's not the Headless Horseman. It's Casper Van Dien, spoiler alert. But it's this great shot that matches the most iconic part of the original Sleepy Hollow that everyone knew up until that point. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And, and it means a lot because, um, you know, from there it becomes a murder mystery, uh, even more so than just the the sort of parable that everyone knows from grade school. And for me, that's always stuck with me. And even even in the theaters, I remember just getting chills, just being like, oh, this is what I was waiting for. This is great. Even if it is a total departure from the source material, it does kind of does. It, it's this like nod that it gives you what you want, but at the same time, totally takes you in a different direction. Mine's from Edward Scissorhands, and maybe it's because I just watched it for my first time pretty recently, and so it's like really fresh in my mind. But I love the scene where Diane Weiss gets in her little yellow car, and she's selling her Avon products, and everybody in the town doesn't want to buy her Avon products. They all know the Avon lady. 
And she looks at the castle that everybody knows about at the edge of town. <laughs> and she decides that that's where she's going to go to try to sell her makeup. And, like, you can see these clouds above the castle that almost look like Bob Ross, like, painted them on. Like, they were just little happy accidents. And it's just, like, you can see the the color of the houses as she passes by. So you see these pinks and blues, and the grass is super green. And the sky is really this, like, really beautiful light blue, all with this backdrop of this, like, gray and black, scary haunted mansion-looking thing. And I just, I thought it was beautiful. I thought the contrast of the dark and the light in that particular scene it's really what, like, I was like, okay, I'm into it. And mm-hmm. I knew I was really into it because I didn't touch my phone almost the entire movie. <laughs> and that's how I know I really enjoyed something because I myself am a millennial, millennial so. <laughs> I'd also like to stick around in Edward Scissorhands land for a second because <laughs> the funny thing is my favorite image is from later in that exact same scene. And it's when Diane Weiss makes it all the way to the top of the tower right before Edward reveals himself on screen for the first time, where it's the most one of the most Burton-esque images imaginable, a gnarled, endless landscape of broken roof and tattered wood and just splintered lines in every direction and this small, polite pink woman in the very center of it. It is the kind, it's the visual juxtaposition we've been discussing all episode in one form or another in a single piece of imagery. And I think it's remarkable for that. Yeah, I, I I love that shot. And and then when he comes out forward, you think that she's going to be scared, but she never breaks She just loves him. Like, no. immediately she loves him. And that's why I loved her character. I just, like, I wanted her as a mom. Like, the entire movie, I was like, I wish that was my mom. Well, and in... And in staying on Edward Scissorhands for a moment longer and jumping into our discussion of sound, you know, if we're going to be talking Tim Burton, then in this category over the next few episodes, we're going to talk a lot about Danny Elfman. He, as much as we talk about the Burton aesthetic, Elfman's sound is another major component of that that we've only briefly touched on in this episode. And in the case of Ed, we're going to, in future weeks, talk about some of his really iconic scores. But even in Edward Scissorhands, particularly the main theme, you know, there there is a twinkling quality to Elfman's work with Burton specifically that has come to define Burton as much as anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a an amalgamation of things. It's the the weird sort of the the, the twisty piano that he he seems to throw in there that started, you know, ever since he did Pee Wee's Big Adventure to this sort of like. It's almost like the strangling of uh, like of like these anxious violins that seem to to come in that you really get in like Beetlejuice and yeah it really does all come to sort of a signature fruition with Edward Scissorhands because at that point you're really starting to get into that sort of um, almost like timeless Christmas palette in a way like this could all be Christmas sounds which is why like two years later it works to even an unimaginable effect on Batman Returns. But um, but yeah, for, for Edward Scissorhands, I love it so much because it it does add, it's almost as if like it gives a soundtrack to the snow in this movie, if that makes any sense. But yeah, no, I think, I think with, I think when my, my write-up for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I stressed it how much Elfman is tied to the look and feel of Burton because without it, it just, it's almost like watching, 
it's it's almost like what I imagine it must have been like watching Halloween when John Carpenter didn't have the score for it. You know, like you need to have both. It's not you, you can't have just one or the other. Well, and I think that was like a major contributor to me not knowing that it was a term built Burton film when I went and saw Miss Peregrine's because mm-hmm. it doesn't have that sound that all the other ones have. Although I still really enjoyed the score in that movie. It just doesn't have that eerie, creepy, like almost psycho like kind of jabs and uh, but like flows really gorgeously, you know? Well, well it's funny that you say psycho because I, I, I always thought the two of them together are a lot like Hitchcock and, and, Her- and Herman. Like, you know, I, I think that they're they're both they're like our version of that like totally. our generations well because there's a very particular kind of melancholic sound that elfman's work evokes in edward scissorhands and in a lot of these other movies that is part and parcel of that feeling that we associate with burton in turn perfect example of this is sleepy hollow which mm-hmm. is definitely a more aggressive and menacing take on the elfman burton score but still very much has that sense of wonderment about itself well it's very romantic sounding i feel like sleepy hollow because and although edward scissorhands definitely has like a romantic subplot i feel like the relationship between christina ricci's character and johnny depp is definitely you're more involved in it like so the the music has to kind of set that lovey-dovey tone for them and it does that in their scenes yeah there's a lot of love in this it's kind of a weird sort of i mean it's a gothic love story it's a gothic romance yes for sure um but there there seems to be this sort of like romanticism that kind of ties into this sort of we talked about how like there's this sort of like undercurrent of uh like uh, hypersexuality in this and i think it's also burton's way of commentating on like the whole puritanical you know volume of the times and and i think that burton gets or elfman gets at that okay getting them confused uh i think that elfman gets at that for sure by having these these sort of like gushes of romantic swells that almost seems like shakespearean because that's kind of what you're watching. They're Romeo and Juliet kind yeah. of. And yeah. I remember growing up and watching this movie and like wanting to be Christina Ricci's character. And I think the music definitely puts you in that mindset of like, okay, I'm in a love story and I need to like strive for this man in this like in this movie. And without the music, I don't think as a child I would have like known so much that I was like, I'm in love with these guys oh, yeah, and I want them to be together. They're like Romeo and Juliet in the sense that like, you know, by science and superstition, you know, they're doomed. She, she has this sort of, you know, the the Wiccan-esque, like, witch background, and he's a man of science. And, you know, so I, I, I think that that's kind of like a cool little, you know. Juxtaposition. Yeah, Montague Capulet thing going <laughs> mm-hmm. on there. But, yeah, no, I, I, I like that a lot. And I think this is, it's not, it's definitely, Sleepy Hollow definitely isn't one of, like, Elfin's, like, most notable scores. But, I you know, I, I think it's definitely... Um, one of the situations where the the marriage still is working. Yeah, he knows exactly what kind of tone he's striking. There are these little flourishes of divine chorus that verge on kind of introducing a tone of camp, but it's only as much camp as that heightened gothic romantic medium yeah. allows for. Now, on the other end of that, you have Dark Shadows, <laughs> yeah. which is another Elfman score, and Samantha, as you mentioned earlier, is one that kind of disappears. You forget. Because, again, it it's a movie that doesn't feel entirely Burton-esque and the disconnect with the Elfman score is just one more example of that. Yeah. Well, typically when he, when Danny Elfman scores one of his movies, there's no accompanying soundtrack. It's just a score, you Mm -hmm. know I mean? And 
uh, Sleepy Hollow, there's not really like any songs with like lyrics, you know, whereas Dark Shadows, it's every other scene has a new 70s bop coming at you. And you forget about that background melody when you're so focused on a soundtrack. Well, and it's interesting to see Elfman as much as anything, but at this point doing house sounds for Burton. I think it's very interesting that when we get to Miss Peregrine in a second, the entire reason that Elfman wasn't available for that particular project was because he was working on Alice Through the Looking Glass, a sequel Burton did not direct to his own movie. Yeah. So, you know, he's, if nothing else, he is the house stylist in a certain way. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think both of them are pretty overstretched by that measure. I think that's partly why this movie may have felt so unimaginative, because at the same time he's doing Frank and Weenie, you know, and, and it's not so far removed from when he was doing the, you know, the previous adaptations that we were just mentioning. So I think this is just a, a classic case of kind of phoning it in on both ends, to be honest with you. And, and, and I, and, I, and it, yeah, and that, that's the that's as all I could really say about this movie. Just, <laughs> you know? We're running out of nice ways to say Dark <laughs> Shadows is not very good. We're going to have to start like falling into Midwestern euphemism soon. Like it was just fine. <laughs> it was just fine. <laughs> but jumping over to Miss Peregrine, then you have Michael Higgum and Matthew Murgison, as we mentioned, doing their best approximation of Elfman's sound, albeit with some synthesizer flourishes that he doesn't really draw into his work with Burton. Just some EDM. Uh, at the okay, well, end. that's okay. not really their score. I know. Okay, their fine. score makes me feel like someone in like a little cap, like a little boy is gonna pop out and be like, "Extra, extra, read all about it." Like that's how <laughs> I feel about this score. It just feels like super old, and and that's it. It fits the aesthetic of the film. Yeah, it should be noted that uh, Sammy just uh, did a little like you know jog or a tussle. I don't like think you can really Newsy. say that without as, like as newsies your body. do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I've seen the Christian Bale movie. <laughs> I know how it Great. goes. These the day is the best. Again, out of all of these scores, though, if we're going to be taking, you know, taking all of them and you're putting it on the table, I'm going to walk away with the scissor hand score. I mean, that's it. I, I don't know if there are if we're really talking about iconic Elfman or iconic like Burton scores in any of these. I mean, Elf like Edward Scissorhands is the only one I could say it would be in like debatable for the top tier you huh. know i we, mean i really like it but i think sleepy hollow is my favorite really i really wow. liked it i was listening today at work yeah and um i work with dogs and i put it on really loud and the dogs like all stopped barking well because they thought bit. the headless horseman was coming no it was because i think it suited the little the little doggy hearts <laughs> i don't know i think do- i think mike's onto something here i think dogs are really scared as a culture in, <laughs> in dog culture they're <laughs> extremely afraid of the headless horseman they are it yeah absolutely it. Well, I don't have a good way on from dog culture, so let's just keep the ball, <laughs> keep the ball rolling. Um, in a new category for filmography starting this season, we're also going to take some time at the end of the show here to talk for a few minutes about the film's screenplays, which by this point we've alluded to all of these a little bit, but it's worth exploring in a little more depth what makes these tick, especially since, as you can see here, while Burton commonly has story credits on a lot of his own work, at least in the earlier part of his career, he wasn't directly responsible for his own screenplays a lot of the time. So it's worth considering the other half of, you know, some of the people who helped bring a lot of his storytelling and style to life. For instance, in the case of Edward Scissorhands, you have Caroline Thompson, who turned a concept 
from Burton into something absolutely remarkable because she builds again, she builds much of the film's screenplay around silence, around instances of physicality, which is someone who unfortunately stopped one class short of a screenwriting minor. I can say from meager firsthand experience is hard to do. Yeah. It is very tough to script dialogue free action, which is something that she kind of capitalizes on later on in her career. I mean, this is a screenwriter who would go on immediately the year after to the Adams family, where she must just felt totally at home after doing Edward Scissorhands. But more importantly, she also did films like Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, uh, Nightmare, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is primarily a musical, Black Beauty, uh, Buddy, and also Corpse Bride. Um, and and I think you're that, forgetting the Secret Garden, which is fucking great. Yeah, but I'm 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 trying to pinpoint ones where you don't necessarily are driven just by dialogue, but also just by f- the physicality of things. And I think that's that's kind of interesting that she clearly does have that sort of strength as a screenwriter, and and that and that's something that she would carry on. Um, and she actually directed Black Beauty too, so that's something to be said too. She clearly has the the, the this sort of frame of reference for trying to personify um the the, the unpersonified i mean you know you're taking animals and making them you know human like in characters and that's something that not to say that her sister hans is an animal but but you again know. it goes back to that frankenstein like mm-hmm. trope he's a, a monster like but he's so he's so human at the same time and innocent and i and then you're right dom i think that you know, she takes the the story and and and, and brings some sort of it, it makes it accessible. Well, know? and one of the other really incredible things it does is of all of Burton's stories of misfits, which are the stock in which he has by and large made his career. It's one of the misfit stories that really holds a more general allegorical weight. There are a lot of pieces where it's very clear these are people with whom these are protagonists with whom. Burton clearly identifies here. That's very much true as we discussed earlier, but you also can read a lot of different things into Edward Scissorhands. You can take it as anything for an allegory about really breaking it in any direction you like as somebody, somebody who has been othered being bought into an environment that is simultaneously enthralled by and afraid of the other Mm -hmm. and how especially how quickly that can curdle through something as banal as gossip. Totally. Well, I think it's interesting to note that only one of these four stories or movies that we're talking about are of his own, like, creation. The rest of them are adaptations of something or other. You know, Dark Shadows of a television series, Miss Peregrine's of a book, you know, Sleepy Hollow of, of the most, like, one of the most iconic horror books, you know. And those, while some of them work and some of them don't, I think it goes to show that, like, for the latter part of his career, hasn't really had an original story. And I think he excelled when he was coming up with them instead of just doing someone else's work. No, that's true. I mean, even when he's doing adaptations of some source material, I mean, if you look at Mars Attacks, that's not, I mean, it's obviously, it's it's adapted from cards. It's not, it's not even a comic, really. It's, it's, like, it's like a- They were trading cards. Trading cards. And then the same thing with like, you know, it is a leap- to say that the Batman films are from the comics. Like he made them his own. He made, he, he knew how to take the spines of stories and just build from them. And that's something that is so powerful of his early works that he just, I don't know if it's laziness and I, and it's, and it's not fair to say it's laziness, 
but he clearly is not putting that sort of inertia in his later half, the latter half of his career. It's almost as if, you know, all of that seems kind of moot. There's just this, there there doesn't seem to be this precedence. Now, like the only exceptions that I could even think about in the, in this like post 2000 resume of his is big fit or big fish and also an adapt- guys. adaptation and, but they are adaptations but you can sense that there is an attention to story there and it's important and that story is intrinsically tied to whatever else is happening on that and on screen and the same thing with miss peregrine you know like the, the, the story is precedent there and, and i just don't know if i really get that from like say you know charlie and the chocolate factory or you know um alice in wonderland or or especially not dark shadows where i don't, don't even know what the story is well and in the case of miss peregrine then where you have again jane goldman working from ransom riggs series of novels you have a movie that goes heavy on the exposition that does at times feel like it's in this very modern business of franchise building but at the time again still finds finds its little openings for some of that old trademark eccentricity well, you're also working with a screenwriter again, much like Carolyn Thompson, who knows what she's doing. You know, Jane Goldman, I mean, if you look at all her her other works, I mean, she helped write the screenplay for X-Men First Class, Days of Future Past, uh, Kick-Ass. These are all films that know how to take ensemble characters and make them interesting, make them compelling, make them the force of the story, and which is all what happens with Miss Peregrine. Now, I could say like a lot, I'm not really that familiar with a lot of the characters, in this movie, but the principles for sure you actually care about. And that's obviously you had a, a screenwriter that knew how to do that. And if you can have that, then half of the work is pretty much done for Burton. And you it's know? perfect because when you don't, you have dark shadows, which I don't want to yeah. belabor <laughs> that point too much further because again, among other things, we directly address that film screenplay earlier in the show. But there you have a case of a movie that is trying to serve many masters simultaneously and even as an ensemble piece doesn't really hold together in that same kind of cohesive way. And then that actually leads us all the way back around to Sleepy Hollow, which is interesting because if we're going to return to that point of adaptation on which we began this conversation, Sleepy Hollow starts off venerable to the Irving source material and then, as we mentioned earlier, takes an increasingly ridiculous gauntlet of liberties with it from there. But what is this movie that we, we've been saying this entire time? It's a murder mystery, right? It's like, a, yeah, it's like Clue. Well, he's the, the screenwriter is best written, you know, for Written 7, which is notably one of the greatest murder mysteries of the 90s. And so, again, you're working with a screenwriter that knows what he is doing. Like, this is something that, that, that clearly gets it. Now, I'm not just not, not just to throw Dark Shadows under the bus again, but, you know, as the point that I made before, you know, Seth Green Smith, like maybe on paper, it seemed like he could do this because Dark Shadows is a parody and most of the stuff that he's been doing is a parody. But I, I, I just think that the fact that that this was his first screenplay that I guess he was, a, you know, a co-story writer with John, John August and all. But even so, like, I mean it's it's a little it's just a far cry when you're dealing with someone who wrote seven and he's gonna go into a murder mystery or someone you know like caroline or someone like jane like these these screenwriters that know this that are that that can have that sort of empowerment to to know exactly the type of story that they need to deliver 
I think it's just telling when you look at Dark Shadows, you know. Yeah. And I'm just going to keep throwing this movie under the bus. It's just it. Well, it and in that it. same spirit, what you see with a lot of these scripts is that Burton tends to do best when he's collaborating with people who understand the kind of movie he makes. And in especially the forthcoming weeks of the show, we're going to be talking a lot about both performers and other artists who very much understand what it is that Burton is trying to convey and how some of his best work has come out of those, especially with him, repeated relationships. Yeah. But we're going to put a pin in all of that talk because we have four more weeks of Burton (laughs) and a lot more movies to get through. I want to thank this week's cast for joining me. I want to thank Kat Blackard and also Mike Rothman, who's sitting across from me right now, for all the support (laughs) at Consequence Podcast Network. You can always check us out on Facebook slash Filmography Podcast, where we will be releasing all of our updates about future programming, future seasons, future miniature episodes in between future seasons, all that kind of good stuff. Next week, again, next Thursday, April 4th, we're going to have episode two where we talk about adult Burton as seen through the films Ed Wood, Big Fish, Sweeney Todd, and Big Eyes. You can check me out on Twitter intermittently at D. Suzanne Mayer, and you can find all of my work on Consequence of Sound. Now, where can the goodly people of the internet find you two? Well, you could find me at Consequence of Sound also, and you could also find me on The Losers Club, as I mentioned before, and Halloweenies uh, also, both on the Consequence Podcast Network. And I'll also be on a new podcast featuring... Me, Samantha Kuykendall, on the Fifth Dimension, a Twilight Zone podcast. We like to keep it here spooky and weird. (laughs) Those are also not the only podcasts you can hear on Consequence Podcast Network, although it's a pretty sizable chunk of them. You can also listen to This Must Be the Gig, Lior Phillips' weekly interview series, Kyle Meredith with... And you can also check out past seasons of both this podcast and our sister music series discography at Consequence of Sound. You can leave us a review, again, on Spotify, on iTunes, on Podchaser, wherever you procure your fine podcasts. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast content at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will see you all next week. Consequence Podcast Network.